Hello, this is William Fink of ChrisTheGenia.org, and this is ChrisTheGenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for li- for listening. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday, September tenth, two thousand and twenty-one. Right now, it is Wednesday afternoon, and we are planning to attend the. National Conference of the League of the South in Central Alabama this weekend. So here I am a few days early. Here I'm going to present a critique of a Bertrand Compare sermon titled The Sea and the Waves Roaring, a supposedly scientific academic study conducted by researchers from Harvard, Duke, Stanford, and other institutions, and recently published by Elsevier at the company's sciencedirect.com website, is titled Reparations for Black American Descendants of Persons Enslaved in the United States and Their Potential Impact on SARS-CoV-2 Transmission, referring to COVID-19. In the opening sentence of its abstract, the study claims that in the United States, black Americans are suffering from a significantly disproportionate incidence of COVID-19, going beyond mere epidemiological tallying. The potential for racial justice interventions, including reparations payments, to ameliorate these disparities has not been adequately explored. So the study set out to prove that slavery reparations would save Negroes from the supposed virus, which has caused a non-existent plague, and without a doubt, science is being fabricated, is actively being fabricated to support Jewish identity politics, anti-white identity politics. This is just one more academic attack on a Caucasian race that does not even actually exist. I don't know how you could have critical race theory without race. That is correct. That is what they say. According to many academics in recent years, Caucasians or white people are not a race because race is an artificial social construct. So in Wikipedia's article under the title Caucasian, we read, in part, the Caucasian race, also Caucasoid or Europid, is an absolute obsolete racial classification of human beings based on a now-disproven theory of biological race. The Caucasian race was historically regarded as a biological taxon, which, depending on which of the modern, uh, I'm sorry, which, depending on which of the historical race classifications was being used, usually included ancient and modern populations from all or parts of Europe, Western Asia, Central Asia, South Asia, North Africa, and the Horn of Africa. So we must ask, if race does not exist, why the hypocritical academic industry, because it is an industry, has nevertheless continued to use terms such as racism, 
and racist to account for the general failure of Negroes in America and to describe anyone who understands their failure to be the direct result of the character and intrinsic nature of Negroes. How could we be racist if our race doesn't even exist? If there is no such thing as biological race? However, in news from another portion of the academic world, it has been recognized that certain computer algorithms can be trained to detect a person's race, in spite of the fact that scientists cannot be so well trained, sadly. So we read in a recent article at Wired magazine that evidence that algorithms can read race from a person's medical scans emerged from tests on five types of imagery used in radiology research, including chest and hand x-rays and mammograms. The images included patients who identified as black, white, and Asian. They put black and Asian in capital letters there and white in small letters, if that is not a typographical error on our part. I'll have to check that out. For each type of scan, the researchers trained algorithms using images labeled with a patient's self-reported race. Then they challenged the algorithms to predict the race of patients in different unlabeled images. Evidently, according to the study cited by the article, the algorithms were able to do so with clear and uncanny accuracy. So it began to apologize by stating, radiologists don't generally consider a person's racial identity, which is not, and of course this is their words, which is not a biological category to be visible on scans that look beneath the skin. So in other words, they claim that race or color, if you will, because they don't really like to use that term race any longer, that it is only skin deep and Therefore, they also claim that there are no differences between the various colors of humans below the skin. However, these computer algorithms that scientists themselves developed can tell the difference based on below-the-skin algorithms that detect below-the-skin differences among the races. Checking the original, I'm double-checking the original article from Wired Magazine. And yes, it does have black and Asian in the sentence where it reads, the images included patients who identified as black, white, and Asian. It does have black and Asian in capital letters and a small w for white. Because only the white race is not allowed to exist. And it's blatant, and it's right in our faces. 
But here with these computer algorithms, we see one example because there are others. We see one example of the fact that if computers can distinctly tell who is of what race by looking at pictures of internal body parts, that race should be a biological classification. For each type of scan, the researchers trained algorithms using labels, images labeled with the patient's self-reported race. Then they challenged the algorithms to predict the race of patients in different unlabeled images. Evidently, according to the study cited by the article, the algorithms were able to do so with clear and uncanny accuracy. So it began to apologize by stating, radiologists don't generally, and I understand I'm rereading portions of this, I wanted to stress this portion, radiologists don't generally consider a person's racial identity which is not a biological category, to be visible on scans that look beneath the skin. Yet the algorithm somehow proved capable of accurately detecting it for all three racial groups and across different views of the body. The results led one prominent radiologist to state that the revelation that image algorithms can see race in internal scans likely primes them also to learn inappropriate associations. So scientists are worried that computers will actually learn to be racist. Imagine that. How dare you be able to tell one race apart from another. This radiologist, a female, her own proposed solution was to purposely dumb down the algorithms. When asked about the study, another prominent radiologist, actually a Chinaman, described some of its findings as eye-opening and crazy. And he was quoted as having said that race is a social construct and not in itself a biological phenotype even though it can be associated with differences in anatomy. So this supposed scientist admits that there are differences in anatomy between the races, while at the same time denying that race is biological. This is the hypocrisy of the appointed priesthood. Just as the priests in Jerusalem, who had been appointed by the Romans, were exposed as hypocrites by Christ, Today, scientists are a priesthood which is indirectly appointed by international banks and corporations, and they are also hypocrites. In a presentation bearing that same title, The Appointed Priesthood, which was part 32 of our Protocols of Satan series, which we began some years ago and are still waiting for an opportunity to finish, we said in part that as we mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, referring to our own presentation, we have already discussed earlier in this series the Jewish agents who were embedded into the post-protocols American government. We have also already discussed the great number of influential Jews who ran the print and electronic media and intermarried with the nobility in Britain. These protocols the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, as they are commonly known, 
were first published in Russia in 1905. Therefore, it is not a coincidence that as the plan of the protocols was being effected, the rise of science as the new priesthood and the rise of social engineering by technocrats had taken effect in America and Britain and throughout the West. Once these conditions arose and became accepted as a new creed by the entire political class, they have created a trap through which no political solution is possible. The profession of liberal social sciences as science allows the virtual demonization of every competing political paradigm. Liberalism and capitalism are scientifically good, and all other systems of governance are thereby considered evil. Under the system, a gradual form of Marxism is imposed on all but the elite or ruling class. So-called slavery reparations for Negroes is just one more way to push the Marxist agenda. And while it has not become popular enough in political circles, not yet, now it is being promoted by the official priesthood known as science. Of course, there are already many other social programs in place, or which are being proposed to redistribute wealth out of the hands of those who have worked to acquire it, and into the hands of non-white races. But reparations, paid by people who had never owned slaves, is a direct assault on white America. But just as the academic scientists are hypocrites, the appointed spokespersons for those who rule over us are also hypocrites. So while race does not exist, CNN writer John Blake has recently stated on his Twitter account that white people are projected to become a minority in the United States by 2045. But that by itself won't make the country more racially tolerant. In a related article titled White Supremacy with a Tan, the same writer said, in part, the assumption that more racial diversity equals more racial equality is a dangerous myth. Racial diversity can function as a cloaking device, concealing the most powerful forms of white supremacy while giving the appearance of racial progress. Racism will likely be just as entrenched in a browner America as it is now. It will still be white supremacy with a tan. Then, a little further on, he revealed his true self, where he said, There is a yearning embedded in my DNA that a demographic tide will overtake white supremacy. The belief that white people are superior and they should maintain political, social, and economic power over other races. His entire premise is ridiculous. Other races in this country have had the opportunity to excel whites for many decades now. Black failure can no longer be blamed on whites, but blacks still continue to fail. So, white supremacy becomes a matter of fact simply because whites generally do better than blacks at just about everything except perhaps in the subjective judgments of 
measuring the ability of football and basketball players, perhaps, or certain other sports. If it weren't for them, if it weren't for those sports, millions more blacks would be in prison and the ghetto. But since white men are willing to pay to watch blacks entertain them in those sports, many blacks have become wealthy through playing those sports. Other than that, what have they achieved, except for a certain small percentage of them who have managed to take other avenues out of the ghetto? What have they achieved? All they do is destroy. They haven't built anything. So this writer, who's part black and part devil, this writer, as we will get to, this writer is admitting white supremacy while wishing that it would go away. In the same article, Blake admitted that his own mother was Irish, but that his father was a white Ladino who was Jewish and Castilian, and he looks black to me. Just as the 5th century BC tragic poet Aeschylus had said in the mouth of Theseus, as Theseus spoke to the title character of his play, Hippolytus, the bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the true-born. Another tragic poet, Aeschylus, had said in his Eumenides, Stain clear water with mud, and you will never find sweet drink. Once the enemies of Christianity came to dominate the academic and media institutions, which had happened over a hundred years ago, whites began to forget these and other lessons. They no longer study the classics. Now the white race does not even exist, unless the media seeks to disparage it or celebrates what they consider to be its inevitable and imminent demise. So after over a hundred years of Jewish indoctrination, most whites believe that it is evil to be racist. But the truth is that it's good to be racist, as racism is the love of your own kith and kin and the pursuit of their well-being protecting them from wolves such as John Blake. Racism is so natural that it is an intrinsic part of the English language. For example, the word kind can be a type, such as a race, even though the white race doesn't exist, only black and Asian are capitalized in Wired magazine. And kind is even translated from words which mean race, in the King James Bible, from Greek words, which mean race. But kind may also mean generous, considerate, polite, affectionate, or even loving. It comes from the old English word gekind, gekind, which is natural or native. Then there is another example in the word like which can be used as a preposition to mean having the same characteristics or qualities as, similar to, and as a noun, it is used with reference to a person or thing of the same kind as another. But then, as a verb, to like is to find agreeable, enjoyable, or satisfactory. Therefore, our very language informs us 
that we should like those who are like ourselves, and we should be kind to our own kind, as they are kind. These simple, basic words are themselves the products of our own nature, but it was inevitable that our enemies would roar against us in these last days. Where we are told in Revelation chapter 20 that Satan, which is an epithet for world Jewry, would gather all nations from the four corners of the earth against the camp of the saints. So in different terms, we see in a prophecy made by Christ himself, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 21, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now we believe that time is imminent, and certainly shall happen before the Jewish academics and journalists can accomplish their own plans for the complete extermination of white Christians. So it is with that background that we shall present and critique a paper written as many as 50 years ago, because I can't say precisely when it was written, probably in the 1970s or 80s, by Bertrand Compare, titled The Sea and the Waves Roaring. Before we begin, it must be stated that our copies of Bertrand Compare's sermons were taken from Gene Snyder's transcriptions, sold by the recently deceased Mike Hallamore for many years through Kingdom Identity Ministries, which were published under the title Your Heritage, and digitized and prepared for electronic publication by Clifton Emmeheiser, who had also added some of his own notes. Here in the sermon, Clifton added only one brief note, which I will insert at the appropriate point, or I should say at an appropriate point. I had several choices. But since this is a critical review, I will also add much of my own commentary. Commencing with Bertrand Compare, we have already cited the relevant passage of Luke to which he refers, but which he does not cite. He says in Luke chapter 21, the disciples have asked Joshua about the signs of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Joshua's reply is long and gives many signs. Some of the signs are related to the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. The answer to their question included signs of the end of this age and of Joshua's second coming. Luke 21:25, chapter 21, verse 25, is an obscure and difficult text made more obscure by amazingly poor translation. It tells about one of the signs of the end of the age, the sea and the waves roaring. And Compare did not adequately explain why some of these things which Christ had given, some of these signs which Christ had given or had described, 
pertain to the time of the end. The reason is more clear in Matthew's version of the answer given by Christ, where he was asked three questions, recorded in Matthew chapter 24, where his disciples are recorded as having said, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And of the end of the world. Luke wasn't wrong, but he only recorded two of those questions. Matthew recorded all three. Therefore, the answers which Christ presented, as they were recorded by Matthew in that chapter, and recalled by Luke with some differences in chapter 21 of his own gospel, relate to three distinct events, which the apostles themselves had evidently thought would all happen together. Those events are the impending destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the reason for their questions, the promised return of Christ, and the signs of the end of the age. So Compare continues, This has puzzled many students of the Bible. Did Yahshua really say that a storm at sea was one was to be one of the signs for them to watch for? Many storms at sea, some of them of fearful intensity, have occurred every year since those words were spoken by Yahshua. How could a storm, even a very great storm, be a recognizable sign? This doesn't seem to make sense. It is time to look into this a bit deeper. Usually, where the word sea appears in scripture, it is used in its literal sense. But sometimes, in prophecy, it has another meaning, where it is used to refer to the masses of the earth's peoples. One such instance is Daniel chapter 7, where we read, Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The four great beasts being empires of men, the sea in that instance represents the men of the greater society from which those empires arose. Then there is another example in Isaiah chapter 27 where we read, In that day, the day of the wrath of Yahweh, Yahweh, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. Even Leviathan, that crooked spirit, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. The dragon is not a literal dragon in a literal sea. Rather, in the context of that chapter, it goes on to speak of the vengeance which Yahweh God shall execute against his enemies. There are similar uses of the word sea throughout the prophecies of Scripture, some of which Compare has offered here as examples further on. So, continuing with Compare, is this a matter of mistranslation? Most of this verse is badly garbled in the King James Bible, referring to Luke 21.25. However, this one part, the sea and the waves roaring, is confirmed as correct by good translations. If the wording is correct, and does not mean much when taken literally, we must know it is symbolic. We may be sure that Yahshua never bothered to speak 
trifles. So there is some symbolism which is worth our further study. And of course, Compare is correct that much of Luke chapter 21 verse 25 is poorly translated. In the Christogenian New Testament, we have it to read, And there shall be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth an affliction by the heathens, or nations, the sea and the waves roaring in difficulty, men fainting from fear, and the expectation of that coming upon the inhabited earth. In our November 2012 commentary on that passage, we wrote, An affliction by the heathens, literally an affliction of nations. The phrase by the heathens being a rendering of the genitive plural form of ethnos, which, as it has often been noted in our discussions of the Gospel of Luke, that 2012 commentary, which we did on the Gospel of Luke, ethnos may be rendered as nation, heathen, or people, depending upon the context of the word's use. Here, as at verse 24 of that chapter of Luke, I must let the context stand on its own. The implication here that the affliction is by the heathens, or more literally, from heathens, as the phrase may also have been rendered, is plain in the Greek, and the King James rendering, where it has of nations, while it is a literally correct rendering of the word, or I should say, of heathens, is a literally correct rendering of the word, is a clear error in this context. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I think the King James Version has nations. Our translation has heathens. The heathens, or nations, whichever one may prefer, the heathens here are not the ones being afflicted. If that were the case, the noun would appear in the accusative case rather than in the genitive case. The accusative case of the noun would be expected if it were the object of the verb. But rather, the heathens here are the source of the affliction, for the genitive case is used to express either possession or source, an exactly similar grammatical construction, which the King James Version handled appropriately, is found in Acts chapter 14, verse 5. There is the word horme, which is rendered an attack, which is fair in that context. Tone ethnon, the same grammatical form of the word for nations that we see here, Te kahi, which is both the nations and Eudahion, which is Judeans, and is an attack of both the people and the Judeans in the King James Version. The people and the Judeans together being the source of the attack. So here, Sunoke ethnon is an affliction coming from people or heathens. The absence of the article not being a grammatical issue. All of the white Israelite nations currently being overrun with aliens, we may see exactly how the heathens are the source of our affliction in these last days. Now today I would add that the affliction by the heathens and the phrase the sea 
and the waves roaring are a Hebrew parallelism that both statements describe the same phenomenon. We will cite the rest of our comments on this verse at an appropriate point below. I didn't quite finish it. I cut it off to save a portion of it for later. Once again, returning to Bertrand Compare, my point there being that he is right about the mistranslation in the King James Version, and he will also be right about the nature of the affliction being from the heathens or from the other nations. Compare says, unfortunately, many preachers, many preachers try to spiritualize the Bible into utter nonsense. They try to make almost every word symbolic, getting the most fantastic meanings for their symbolic values. Sometimes they reach silly conclusions out of their own weird notions. Sometimes they make conclusions based on Hindu, Tibetan, Egyptian, or other pagan sources. In this, they are always wrong. Whenever the Bible uses symbolism, it makes it clear that the words are not meant literally, as we have seen in a case we are now discussing. The Bible always supplies the key to its own symbolism, and no other source will ever give you the right answer. I will not disagree with that. There are many places in the Bible where the sea or waters and occasionally a river is used symbolically. If this use proves to have a consistent meaning in these many places, then we can be sure that the sea and the waves roaring will have the same meaning because it doesn't make any sense literally. In Psalms, we find the simplest use of such terms. Psalm 18 verses 16 and 17 says, he sent from above. He took me, David speaking. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. So the waters are a parallelism for the enemy and from them which hated me. Psalm 69 verse 14 continues, Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Perhaps this is where the old English adage that one is in hot water had actually originated. That doesn't mean that you're literally in hot water. It simply means that you're in trouble. Compare says, King David, living and writing in a desert land, was not worried about drowning in deep waters. He makes it very plain that he likens being overwhelmed by his enemies, people, to sinking into deep waters. This is also used on a greater scale, where the power of the great army overrunning a land is symbolized by a river in flood. Actually, the word flood was an archaic term for river in the King James Version of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 7, we read, Now therefore, behold, Yahweh bringeth up upon them, meaning Israel, the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. And that is a river in flood. But the word river itself was often translated simply as flood in the King James Version. There's an example of that in 
Joshua, the book of Joshua in chapter 24, where it makes several references to the other side of the flood, speaking of the ancestors of Abraham. And there, that word flood, which means a stream or a river, is simply a reference to the Euphrates, as the ancestors of Abraham had come from point a point north of the Euphrates River. But here we also see Hebrew parallelism, where waters of the river, in that passage which Compré cited, describes the same entity alluded to in the phrase, King of Assyria and all his glory. Now, Compré offers another example. We find another example of this in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, these words are being spoken to Israel in the Assyrian captivity, and also indicates that they would not stay in the places to where, is, to where the Assyrians had brought them. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and to the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle thee. And none of that should be taken literally. It should be looked at as peoples, nations, and tribulation and war. Isaiah was speaking here to the people of the ten-tribe northern kingdom of Israel. Not necessarily. He was always spe also speaking to the people of the 46 fenced cities of Judah taken into Assyrian captivity. They had just been taken into captivity by the great Assyrian Empire. They were being deported across the entire width of the Assyrian Empire to be resettled in a large area around the southern end of the Caspian Sea. And some of them were also settled on the southern end of the Black Sea in the east and west of either sea. Compre continues, and he says, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 7, the prophet had spoken of the king of Assyria and his army as a river which would overflow its banks and flood the land, which it did when the kingdom of Israel was overrun and conquered. Now Isaiah assures Israel that Yahweh will be with them when they pass through the waters and will not let the river completely overflow them in their deportation and resettlement in their new home in Scythia. Assyria will not be allowed to destroy Israel. And that is true, that that is what Isaiah was saying. But actually, the Israelites had broken off in several different directions, and some migrated into Europe centuries before others, while the Parthians and yet others had stayed behind to eventually rule Mesopotamia. As it says in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 3, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, or nations, and make the desolate places to be inhabited. Because if they were void of Israelites, regardless of who lived there, they were considered by God to be desolate. Speaking of those who migrated into Europe at a later time, Compare says, Isaiah had even more in view here, to occur centuries later. By then, the people of Israel were known by new names, Scythians, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Angli, and Saxons. As they started on their long march 
toward their predestined new European homes, a vast flood of people came out of Asia. The Huns led by Attila. The Huns tried to move swiftly enough to cross Israel's path to cut them off. Yahweh would not allow this invasion to come until the tribes of Israel had safely crossed into northern Europe. The Huns could only bark at the heels of Israel's rear guard. This river, the vast army of the Huns, was not allowed to overflow Israel exactly as Yahweh had promised. And of course, this is not a fair assessment of history. And Compre's knowledge of the Huns was obviously based on the propaganda of the Romans and of Jordanes, the historian of the Goths, who was educated as a Roman, being an Eastern European bureaucrat for the Byzantines. I'm sorry, an Eastern Roman bureaucrat. The truth is that the Huns were also a part of the stone cut out of the mountain without hands which helped to destroy the Roman Empire. Procopius, a much more balanced and perhaps better educated Greek historian, who had direct experience with Goths and also with Huns in the field as they served as mercenaries for Justinian, had understood and explained that both Huns and Goths came from the same tribes of the Massagetae Scythians who had inhabited Central Asia. So we disagree with Compare completely on his assessment of the Huns. Continuing with Compare, in Revelation chapter 12, John saw a woman, obviously symbolic of Israel, who gave birth to a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. He was caught up to Yahweh and to his throne. Of course, this was Yahshua the Christ. Then the serpent, Satan, persecuted the woman the Israel nation, and gave her two wings of a great eagle with which to flee into the wilderness. Most of the areas of Europe, which the people of Israel migrated into, were a wilderness at that time. The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after her, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So it was. The mighty hordes of the Huns rolled across most of Europe. They came south of the lands which Israel had migrated into. On the death of Attila, in the year 453 AD, his vast army broke up in disorder and melted back away back to Asia in retreat. This is also not true. The Huns actually preceded many tribes of Israel into Europe to attack Rome. Huns were explicitly mentioned as allies and mercenaries for the Byzantines in their wars against the Goths nearly a hundred years after the death of Attila. However, Attila's passing did mark the end of the empire of the Huns, who had ruled over the Goths and other Germanic tribes of the time. The seat of their empire was in the great Hungarian plain, and although their subsequent history is fragmented, At least many of them had apparently retreated to the Pontic Steppe in modern Ukraine and southern Russia, above the Black and Caspian Seas, after a war with the Germanic Gepids. In later centuries, the Magyars who returned to Hungary had 
identified themselves with the Huns. They believed that they were the, the descendants of the Huns. Now, today's academics dispute all that history. But today's academics think that they know better than the men who actually lived during those times. Interestingly, the Wikipedia article on the Huns repeats the Roman propaganda, which Jordan has also repeated, concerning their appearance. And it ignores the contrary descriptions by Procopius, who was a secretary to the famous Byzantine general Belisarius, and who personally observed many Huns firsthand from his time or during his time in the field. This is a digression, but the record must be corrected. So returning once again to Compare, he does better describing the time of the captivities of Israel. He says much was to happen in the meantime. Two huge and mighty empires were in great power then, yet they must crumble into ruin as Yahweh willed. One was Assyria and the other was Egypt. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 11 tells about this and prophecies. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deeps of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. Compare continues and he, or responds to that passage. And he says, there is no record of any disturbances of the real sea and rivers. The symbolic sea of Assyria's vast armies was smitten, and its proud empire was brought down, totally destroyed. Likewise, Egypt, so often symbolized by its great Nile River, suffered the prophesied fate. The scepter of Egypt shall depart away. It was only a little later that Egypt lost its independence and became the vassal of one great power after another. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 42, the prophet foretold the coming fall of Babylon. He said, The sea is come up upon Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of the waves thereof. We know Babylon was hundreds of miles inland. I wouldn't say hundreds, but it was quite a ways. And not in the slightest danger from a sea of water. This definitely prophecies the invasion and conquest by the great armies of Media and Persia, which occurred about 60 years after Jeremiah wrote this. And actually, ancient Babylon was built on both sides of the Euphrates River. But the river can hardly be described as a sea with waves. Compare continues. The prophet Isaiah was looking ahead 26 centuries to our own times, when he wrote in Isaiah chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing waters, but Yahweh shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the winds, like a tumbleweed before the whirlwind. Here we must certainly agree that while Isaiah chapter 17 had an immediate fulfillment, the prophecy is meant to also have a far future fulfillment, speaking of the final day of the wrath of Yahweh. 
ancient Babylon serves in prophecy as a type for world conditions upon the return of Christ, whereby in the Revelation there is a vision of the fall of mystery Babylon, which is in turn associated with international trade. So Compare, where he continues, does well to connect this prophecy with modern circumstances. And he says, Today we see the gathering, the evil gathering, of all the dark people of the earth. Jews like John Blake, the writer for CNN. Joined together in the hope of crushing and plundering the white race. He admitted that it was in his DNA to do that. Who are the only really productive people on the earth. The other races should, in fact, be grateful to the naive white race for lifting them out of the jungles and out of the cesspools of places like the Orient and and South America and placing them in houses and in automobiles and in the comforts of all of our other inventions, things which they would never have invented. But they're not. They just want to be us, and they can't, so they want to destroy us and replace us. So, Compare says, in truth, they are gathering only for their own destruction. For Yahweh will thwart their evil plans. We find this evil mentioned in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And with this I don't agree. Compare was a partial futurist. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy or the names of blasphemy. Compare continues, and he says, The last bestial empire rises out of the sea of the great hordes of Asia and Africa. In Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 and 15, we read, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We would not associate the two beasts of Revelation chapter 13 with modern governments or circumstances. They represent first the series of empires which ruled over the children of Israel for three and a half times, and second, the Roman Catholic papacy, which ruled over the children of Israel for three and a half additional times, as we interpret Revelation chapter 13 in harmony with Daniel chapter 7 and other scriptures. However, Compare does better to associate today's circumstances with Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 12, John saw a vision of a woman with 12 stars, which represents the children of the 12 tribes of Israel, fleeing into the wilderness where she is nourished for 
1,203 score days, which is also three and a half times, 1,260 years. Then in Revelation chapter 17, John returned to the wilderness to see the woman, ostensibly the same woman. And she had, by that time, joined herself to the beast and handed her kingdom over to the beast. Revelation chapter 17, verse 17. This represents the children of Israel in this age where they are literally joined to the capitalist system of world Jewry. The dragon, which gives its power to the beast, and they are accepting of all of the beast races, by which Satan is gathering all of the nations of the world against the white race, the camp of the saints. In that chapter, the seven mountains upon which the woman sits are seven former world empires which had, at one time or another, ruled over the children of Israel, but which the woman had overcome. Then, the eighth, the eighth beast, which is of the seven, we have associated with the world banking empire of international Jewry. The Jews themselves being Satan, promote the siege of the camp of the saints at every turn, in every walk of life, from both within and without. So Compare is also correct and does very well, where he next says that, therefore, when Yahshua used the symbol of the sea and the waves roaring, he was speaking of an uproar of nations and races. Psalms tells us about this same thing. Psalm, cha- psalm 2, the second psalm, verses 1 through 3 reads, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The passage from the second psalm was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ, as the apostles had professed in Acts chapter 4. But the adversaries of Christ fulfill it once again today by rebelling against and persecuting his anointed people, which are white Christians. The same white Christians who brought civility to the entire world. And by now we should realize that the other races cannot be civilized. They simply want to destroy us, to do away with us completely. Someday, the gospel of Christ will be revealed to all those whites who do not yet understand it. In that same passage from our commentary on Luke chapter 21, verse 25, which we had cited earlier here, We only cited the portion that corrects the translation of the passage. We have made the following conclusions in reference to this passage in Luke and the roaring of the waves in the sea, from where we had left off earlier. The sea in prophecy very often represents the general masses of people. From Jeremiah chapter 51, the sea has come up upon Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of the waves thereof. 
Her cities are a desolation, a dry land, and a wilderness, a land wherein no man dwelleth, neither does any son of man pass thereby. Another example from Zechariah chapter 10. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. In Revelation chapter 21, we see a promise concerning the same sea, which Christ depicts here in Luke. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There shall be no more sea, because all of the aliens feeding themselves off of the children of Israel shall be, as it says in Obadiah, as if they had never existed. Saying these things, we did not consult Compare's sermon, but rather our own independent research verifies and corroborates what he had said here at a much earlier time. He probably gave this sermon in the 1970s or 80s. The fact, when I was still a young boy, the fact that we did not choose any of the same examples which he had is exemplary of the multitude of scriptures which support our interpretation of Luke 21-25. But Compre could not have foreseen today's circumstances, which are much more dire than those of his own time. Perhaps I should say, perhaps we did not choose many of the same examples, because I think there is one in common, perhaps. Compare could not have foreseen today's circumstances, which are much more dire than those of his own time. Compare referred to nations rebelling against white civilization and the British Empire, nations in Africa and, and elsewhere. But now we have all of these people from those alien races here in our own city streets and next door in houses next to our own who are, or even in our own houses, if our children are race mixers, and they're still rebelling against us and they still hate us. They still despise us and want to replace us. Compare could not have foreseen that. I don't think he ever imagined it. So where he continues, he points to examples from his own time, which do not seem so threatening to us now. He said, this is exactly what we have seen since the end of World War II. The uncivilized races of Asia and Africa have demanded independence. By the wicked connivance of sinister politicians, they have been given it. We see the results of this in the senseless massacres of not only the white people, but even of their fellow savages in the Congo, Zanzibar, Tanganyika, Kenya, Rwanda, and Urundi, where the Negroes are behaving like Negroes. And of course, as we see today, now the Negroes behave like Negroes in practically every American city and every other European city city of 
European peoples or white peoples. And they are all, all those cities, all the cities in America, are left in virtual ruins wherever the Negro populations have exceeded others. So not only do they destroy civilization in their homelands when it is brought to them, but they are even destroying civilization here. So in that manner, Compare says, the only trace of civilization they ever had was what the white man brought them. And that is vanishing as the white man is being driven out. These untamed cannibals have been artificially grouped into nations, which they never were. And that is true in Africa and in Asia. Their newly made national boundaries include many separate tribes, bitterly hostile to each other. This really had only one purpose, to make these artificial nations out of these cannibals. So their vote in the United Nations would outvote the entire civilized world. This would pull all the world down into that destruction out of which only bold thieves and murderers can profit. He should have said Jews. This is precisely what has happened in South Africa and the former Rhodesia, which is now called Zimbabwe, and all other places where Europeans had formerly ruled, but which have since been surrendered to the Aboriginal natives. Here we shall insert the single note which Clifton Emmerheiser had made when he prepared this paper for publication on the internet. I think that happened in 2007. Compre really outdid himself with his lesson, especially where he said, Today we see the evil gathering of all the dark people of the earth, joined together in the hope of crushing and plundering the white race, who are the only really productive people on the earth. From this observation, continuing to the end of his message, he made many timely comments. Inasmuch as Compre died 24 years ago in August of 1983, around the same time that Ronald Reagan had given immigration amnesty to several million Mexicans, the dark people of the earth have gone far beyond even what Compre had envisioned. And in 2007, when Clifton wrote those words, it was looking pretty dismal. But now, today, of course, it's looking even worse, and now we're about to be flooded by a few million Afghanis, in addition to all of the other mongrels. But as Yahweh said in Ezekiel, he's bringing them here. He's bringing them here to demonstrate his power. He'll put hooks in their jaws to bring them here. But they're all coming here to be destroyed every last one of them. And this nigger that writes for CNN, John Blake, he's one of them. He's going with them. So Clifton had also complimented this sermon. As a digression, Clifton was not critical of Compre's position on the Huns, because until we spoke about that subject at length in 2007 or 2008, and I believe it was 2008, he had agreed with Compre. When I explained to him my position on the Huns, he broke from that and had come to agree with me. Disappointingly, I disappointed Clifton. There was supposed to be a German Origins Part 7, 
which was supposed to be titled Who Are the Huns? And one of the disappointments in my life is that when Clifton passed in 2018, he was still waiting for me to write that paper. I'm sorry, I just couldn't get it done, but he was still waiting. When I did part six of the podcast series of Germanic Origins, I did add quite a few paragraphs to the end of it explaining my position on the Huns. So now, once again, continuing with Compare, this is not news to Yahweh. The 83rd Psalm, verses 1 through 4, tells about it. Keep not thy silence, O Yahweh. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O Yahweh. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people, and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation. Whites are no longer a race. That the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. The psalm was written by Asaph, a prophet of the captivity. Yes, it can be established very readily in about 10 or 12 of the Psalms written by Asaph that he was a prophet of the captivity. And the children of Israel did not fit the description of thy hidden ones until long after that captivity, long after Asaph wrote, when they had emerged in Europe under many different names now speaking in reference to them in modern times. Indeed, Compare continues, Indeed, this is what they have done. Traitors within our own nation, hoping to profit by getting greater power in the tyranny which will be set upon the ruins of our once free republic. He knew it was coming, he just didn't foresee how it was coming. Are indeed trying to cut us off from being a nation. We're not even white anymore. Our race doesn't exist. Wired Magazine spells white with a small w, while it spells black and Asian with capital letters. So there you have it. They are trying to put us completely under the rule of a United Nations world government, in which we would have only one vote. The entire civilized world would have only some 12 to 15 votes against nearly 100 votes of our enemies who wait ingredient patience for the moment when they can enslave and ponder us, plunder us, I'm sorry, plunder us, our enemies, 100 votes. No, it's more like 150 or so. Compare gave too much credit to the United Nations in his interpretations of prophecy. The United Nations is only a paper tiger which is leveraged against white Christian nations by its true overlords, the international bankers. It should be absolutely clear in the last 50 years, if not sooner, that all world governments have walked practically in lockstep with the policies of the international corporations, and when any nation breaks away, there is war. Yet at the same time, certain nations, such as Israel, or China, openly defy United Nations policies and directives, and there is never war. In domestic affairs here in America, 
When whites hold any sort of conference or demonstration, they are heavily oppressed and penalized by government for the slightest perceived wrongdoing. The FBI has even financed so-called white nationalist groups and has made them appear to be criminals in order to discredit all white nationalists. But Negroes riot and destroy entire cities with very few consequences. And the media instead portrays them as having been oppressed, when in reality they have been coddled with legislated social and economic advantages and billions or perhaps even trillions of dollars in welfare and failed social programs. Yet they still riot and make further demands continuously roaring like the waves of the sea. Now, once again, continuing with Compare, he begins to discuss our hope and promise deliverance, because we will prevail over these roaring waves, and they will evaporate when the heat, when they finally face the heat. Yahweh will upset their plots, as the 46th Psalm tells us, verses 1 through 3. Yahweh is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will I not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. We know the word mountain is often used as a symbol of a kingdom, an organized nation, how many times in this generation have we seen a mountain or organized government shaken, then finally carried into the midst of the sea or dissolved in revolution by a sea of turbulent people? Of course, Compre's interpretation is excellent, but most denominational Christian pastors would rather not accept it, as it would force them to realize the racial message of the scriptures. So they would often prefer to imagine some future time when the land masses of large mountains are magically picked up and cast into the ocean. Compare continues once more. This is the sign of which Joshua spoke, the sea and the waves roaring. It is certainly a sign of the end of the age we have known. If it is allowed to increase... All civilization will be blotted out in a new dark age. Compare expected white people to resist. He expected resistance on, on the part of white Christians, when instead they simply roll over, play dead, wear masks, masks on their faces, and submit themselves to being vaxxed or getting vaccines that poison them forever. So there is no resistance, even though the dark age certainly would come eventually. Yahweh has promised that we can trust him to save us. We certainly can't trust our politicians. There's no political solution. The great alliance of all the dark world will march against us, not to our destruction, but to their own. Dirtbags. Criminals like John Blake, who writes for CNN, who wants to see white people done away with. He wants to see the end of whiteness, and then he complains about a white supremacy, which might be tan. 
Speaking of mountains, the children of Israel are often represented allegorically in prophecy with Zion, Yahweh's holy mountain. So we read in Obadiah, another prophecy of deliverance, where it says, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, the people of Israel, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Immediately thereafter, the children of Israel are portrayed as destroying the house of Esau, a label by which world Jewry is identified. Capra continues and cites another psalm, the 46th psalm, verses 6 through 8, which he says completes the picture. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, he utters his voice, and the earth melted. Yahweh the Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of Yahweh, what desolations he has made in the earth. He makes war to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear asunder. He burns the chariot with fire. That psalm is not attributed in Scripture. However, the language certainly does corroborate our interpretations of both Luke 21, verse 25, and a passage from the second psalm cited by Compare earlier, which asks, why do the heathen rage? Here we see the aftermath, the heathen raged, and they will all be destroyed. Now Compare begins his conclusion. The evil tumult of the uncivilized nations against us is a bad thing. Our leaders never would have allowed this to happen if they had been true to their trust. The tumult is here, and its presence is a sign. Little did Compare know that the tumult wasn't even close to being here in the 1980s. Not only of the trouble we have gotten ourselves into, but also of the rapid approach of the end of this age. Psalm 65, verses 5 through 7, reassures us. By terrible things, righteousness wilt thou answer us, O Yahweh of our salvation. I'm sure that should say, O God of our salvation, which fits better in the context of the pronoun. Who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth, and of them that are afar upon, off upon the sea, by which his strength setteth the noise of the seas, the noise of the waves, and the tumult of the people. So right there we see that the tumult of the people is a parallelism with the noise of the seas and the noise of the waves. So we see what Yahshua Christ is talking about in Luke chapter 21. Of course, our leaders are joined to the beast, along with our people. And that too was foreseen by Yahweh. So in Revelation chapter 17, we read, For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. If we have gotten to this point, 
as the scripture so profoundly prophecies, then we can be as certain about the fulfillment of our deliverance as we are about the witnessing of our punishment. So Compare ends his sermon on a note of hope, because our hope is assured. He says, Rejoice then that you have seen this sighing of the sea and the waves roaring. While it is evil and threatens death and destruction in itself, yet it is the sighing, it is the sign that the return of our Redeemer, Yahshua the Christ, is near. We are at the end of this poor age. Again, Compare didn't really have a clue how bad it would get. But the beginning of the kingdom of Yahweh in full power upon the earth. Yahshua the Christ will be upon his throne as king of kings forever. And while we shall indeed have further trials, this is our hope as we await the inevitable fall of mystery Babylon. While today the Jews may dispute whether there really is a God or a Christ, in future days men shall dispute whether there were really ever any Jews. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.